Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 21, verse 22. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the trusted stronghold. Wisdom surpasses walls and strongholds for security. Wisdom is more capable and powerful than the walls of the city or the trusted stronghold. And a wise man understands this. He puts his faith in God who can give him victory and he trusts in God who ordains all things. Scripture illustrates this many times. Jericho, walls of stone towering above the people of Israel. And the Israelites come and in wisdom rest on God and march around those walls seven times and then they, they fall in crumbled pieces. David conquers his enemies because he trusts in God and he rests in God. Jesus, likewise, trusted God even to the point of death on the cross and God used that to crush the head of the serpent and God vindicated Jesus in the resurrection because wisdom is victorious. And the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The reason wisdom wins is that it, it deals with reality, the way things really are, because God is ultimate reality. God is truly real, and He is the one who made the world, and He ordains how it works. God created the world, and He's sovereign over time and history. He's sovereign over kingdoms and battles. He's sovereign over life and death. And in him the wise man knows that he can do all things because Christ strengthens him. Also, God gives his people marching orders. God expects his people to go to battle, to fight the good fight, and to live intentionally and purposefully. We must be busy about the work of establishing the kingdom of Christ over every corner of the world because that is the Great Commission. We can never sit idle and just relax because it is not okay for us to drop our guards. Otherwise, we'll be like David when he didn't go to war and that's how he lands in deep trouble in his sin with Bathsheba because idle hands are the devil's workshop. So get busy scaling the walls of God's enemies and get busy taking down the strongholds of sin. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so if you're willing and able, please kneel.
Paul is in Athens. He's on his second missionary journey, and he's waiting for Timothy and Silas. He had gone through Turkey to check on the, the churches he'd planted in the first missionary journey, and went to Macedonia in, in, in obedience to a vision that he had, and Luke joined him in uh, Troas, and and traveled with him to Philippi. There he ministered to Lydia and to the Philippian jailer. And he was, uh, uh, from there he went to Thessalonica and then to Berea. Um, the Thessalonian Jews chased him out of town and, and he got on a ship and went to uh, Athens. And last week we, we studied about how he was provoked by the idolatry of the city. And his pro- this provocation drove him to speak. He, he reasoned with them in the synagogues and in the marketplace. He reasoned and he spoke the gospel and he spoke truth against the idolatry of the city. And then he was taken to the Areopagus by the, with the Areopagus, which was the intellectual and the, the civic center of the city. Uh, he was taken there by Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Because the culture, as the text reads, was curious about new things. They, they spent their time in nothing more than to, to, to hear something new. Now, as I said last week, there's a lot in our text this morning. And I was briefly tempted to turn this into a five-sermon miniseries. <laughs> there's a lot going on here. Um, Paul's proclaiming creation. God is the creator God. He's proclaiming Judgment. God will judge men, and all men everywhere have to have to answer to Him. He's proclaiming. He's teaching us about how to proclaim the gospel. He's he's teaching us about apologetics, how to defend the truth of the Scriptures in a heathen place. And and there's there's more than that. But instead of turning this into a big long mini series, we're going to look at the message as a whole today, and, and we're going to do this because Paul delivered it as a whole in one sitting. He, he shows up at the Areopagus, he preaches the gospel, and uh, because there's so much stuff going on here, some of this stuff we're going to have to do a little bit of a flyby with. We're going to have to touch on it, proclaim truth about it, and then move on. Um, but the sense and the momentum of this message are powerful as, as a unit. So the first thing we see in our text, verses 22 and 23, is Paul opens his discourse. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Now this might be an interesting start when we consider what we already know about where Paul is at. He is provoked by the idolatry in this city, and he's on fire. He's, he's, he's irritated, he's agitated, he's, he's like he was when that, that, that slave girl was following him around. He got provoked by her and he cast the demon out. His spirit was kindled and he felt very strongly about the foolishness 
and, and the wickedness of the Athenian idolatry. So knowing that, it's fascinating that he starts here with seeming praise. It's like, he says, men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious. The term is, is neither necessarily you know, a, a positive thing. It can also be superstitious. And he's leaving it a little bit ambiguous. But the way he's, he's putting it, his, his audience would take it as a compliment. But, in fact, what he's doing is he's identifying the holes in his opposition's foundation. He's, he's recognized their self-proclaimed ignorance. He's bringing that to their attention. He says, you yourselves have built an altar to the unknown God. And yet, while he's doing this, while he's bringing them to the very, the, the, the weakest part of their foundation, he's doing it in a winsome way. He starts where they're at. They can identify with his admiration of their religiosity. They can identify with his recognition of their altar and, and his recognition of, of their culture. He's, he's, bought, he's getting them to buy into his argument here. And on top of that, all through this message, he uses their language. He uses the kinds of words that they use that they would understand. He uses their poets to, 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 to make his argument. And he uses their arguments that their different philosophies had in order to point to the truth of the gospel. The words he, the, the the word that he uses for um, I perceive that you are very religious is a huge word that's seven syllables long, and so he's he's coming to them and he's he's explaining to them that he can speak their language. They were the um, the elite. The, they were the again remember they were the Ivy Leagues of, of educated the academia of their world. And he shows up, he starts out with a really big word just to prove that he knows how to speak their language. They're not pulling any wool over his eyes or hiding behind this uh, uh, specialized vocabulary. He knows what they're saying when he hears what they're saying. He, he's, he's, it's not that he's an idiot or he can't follow the argument. He's a smart and a wise man, and he's somebody who knows exactly what's going on. But he sees so clearly, clearly that he knows where their holes are, are in their arguments. And yet, he also knows that he needs to, he needs to present the gospel in a way that they will hear it. So, he, he speaks their language, he recognizes their practices, he says, as I was, I was, I was, I was observing your culture as I was wandering in, in your city, and he identifies their altar. But then, again, right there at the center of this, he, there's this theme of ignorance that, that is, is, is found in this speech. He says, the first time we come to it, he's like, I saw an altar to the unknown God, the word for unknown is agnoisto, uh, which means ignorant. They do not know, without knowledge. And then they see, he says, so I saw this tomb, 
to the unknown God, the ignorant, the God you are ignorant of. And then he says, this God you worship without knowing. Again, it's that same word, agno. And, and uh, he's saying, this, this ignorance, you worship in ignorance. And, and then he's drawing a, a, a key point here, because in the Greek culture, the philosopher's world, ignorance was the sin. That was the thing that you couldn't be. Because they thought that you could reason your way, you could, you could understand your way to God by studying the world, the, 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 by, by studying yourself, by looking around you. You could go in your mind and explain everything because men were capable of knowledge. And men, in their capability of knowledge, the Greeks prided themselves, themselves on their wisdom. They thought they could reason their way to true knowledge of God or of the gods, depending on which, which, which way they, they went. But Paul plays with this thing. And his argument is very powerful. He bases it on this thing. In fact, his point is that they are ignorant. And they have been completely ignorant up till now. They, they don't know God. They don't know the real God. They don't know the true God. And he says, you, you yourselves claim not to know, so let me tell you. He says, let me tell you what I know about God that you must know. And the first thing he says is that God is bigger and he's greater than you think. Verses 24 through 26. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Again, there's a whole sermon just in those couple verses. But, Paul says God is bigger and he's greater than you think. God is the creator of the world. He is creator of the world. He rules heaven and earth. He is self-sufficient and he is sovereign over time and place. Now this is bigger and it's greater than what the Greeks thought. Now, there were aspects of this thinking in Greek philosophy. In the, there were parts of the argument that the Stoics would agree with, and there were parts of the argument that the Epicureans would agree with. But none of them would agree with the whole truth of who God is, based on their philosophy. Because the Epicureans were right about God's otherness. They, they thought that God was distant, that he was not... Like they were like us, but they were they were they were away from us, and they were distant. They were right in the sense that God is outside of the world. He he is distinct from the world because he is the creator. 
And the Stoics were right about God's involvement in the world. That God had providence. That God, they, they believed in fate. That's what, what they called it. But they were right about the fact that God ordains times and places. But what Paul is saying is that God is both near, ordaining time and place, and far, not within us, but separate from us, and he's distinct and he's outside of us, like the Epicureans, and he's concerned about us, like the Stoic. But, he, but, he, but Paul opposes specifics of the, these, these philosophies, because the Epicureans say, because God was distant, because God was other, he didn't care about what we do. But no, Paul contradicts that and says, God does care about what we do. And the Stoics said that God judges, no, the Stoics said that, that we are like little gods, and, and we could do, it's basically, you can do the best that you can do, and if you can get away with it, that's awesome, because there's no judgment. When we die, we just, our spirits go to be back with the great God of all things. That's in, and, and the spark of divinity is in everything. And Paul's saying, no, God will judge you because he is over you and he's outside of you and he holds you accountable for what you do. And for both of them, he's saying that matter is not eternal. Matter is subject to God. Creation is subject to God. Even down to individual life and breath and all things. He's proclaiming a fearful and awesome God. A God that is in control of your next breath. Of your next heartbeat. That if he doesn't lift you up and hold you up, and if, you, if he doesn't take care of you, you're toast. This God is bigger and greater than they think. And this means, since he is both present and other, he is both near and he's judge. It means that men must seek him. Verses 27 to 28. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And also some of your own poets have said... For we are also his offspring. Here we see that God, while he is bigger and greater than us, he's also more intimate and more wonderful than we think. Again, Paul goes to the Greek poets to affirm the truths of Scripture. He's dealing with pretty deep stuff here, and he's trying to communicate in a way that the Greeks will follow his argument, that they'll understand. What he's saying is that men are morally bound, dutied to serve and to seek God. They should seek the Lord. And this is the creation principle or the creator-creature distinction. Because God made the world, everything that is made owes its existence and therefore its gratitude to Him. It's the argument we read about in Romans 1. So that he is revealed in his, re in his revelation, in his creation, and men are without excuse because we know that we owe him our gratitude by everything we see and everything that we are. 
And moreover, we are not left groping for him without hope. We're supposed to be, men are supposed to feel out their way through all this confusion to find God. But we're not supposed to do it without hope because he is here. He's not far from each one of us. And this is something that the Greek poets attested to. They said, in fact, we're his offspring. We, 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 are, we can see him in, in ourselves. So they kind of understood, but they were also confused. They didn't, they didn't put the right meaning behind what that meant. And Paul next sets out what that means for them. He says, since we are God's offspring, therefore, verse 29, because we are also his offspring, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Because we are the offspring of God, we don't have the right to create Him. He creates us. And that's the essence of the issue here. And He's just pointing an arrow at their foolishness and their idolatry, saying, Who made who? You can't say both, we are the offspring of God, and then where's God? Well, there he is in that stone temple, and he's in that that gold statue, and in that silver statue, and and you can't do that. Who made who? And this is a very biblical principle. We find it all through the scriptures, but Paul is tearing down their idols by the lips of the idolaters. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. We are created in the image of God. We're not allowed to try and recreate Him based on our image. It doesn't work that way. If we're God's offspring, what are we doing trying to become his parents? We cannot get away with reducing the creator God who holds us and gives us breath and ordains times and places and who begot us to a chunk of gold or silver or stone and then put him in a temple and serve him as Paul has already made the point that he doesn't need that. He is self-sufficient. He is God over everything. We are the ones who need him. So logically, this is absolute ignorance and foolishness, and Paul has just laid it out. And then we get to the conviction part, verses 30 and 31. And here he says that God cares more than you think. But what he's really saying is, you are in deeper trouble than you think. If God is powerful, as opposed to the Epicurean beliefs, and if God is involved, as opposed to the Epicurean beliefs, then we must answer to him. And we must answer to him for all the foolishness that we do instead of doing what we're supposed to do. Verses 30 and 31. God cares more than you think. 
Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And here he comes back to the, the ignorance thing. Truly, these times of ignorance, God has overlooked. These, what he's saying is, you are guilty of your own greatest sin. You don't know God. You're ignorant of him. And because you're ignorant of him, you don't live for him and you don't worship him and you're not thankful to him. And therefore, you must repent. God's not destroyed you up until now because he's graciously overlooked your gross sin, which is fully evident in these gold and silver and stone statues and temples and all this idolatry and false worship. This is what Paul is provoked by. He's laid it out and says, you do not worship the true God. And therefore, you are on track to be on the wrong end of God's judgment. The Greeks didn't know, and God has overlooked their ignorance until now. But now, because God has revealed himself in a new way... Because Paul has preached the gospel to them, they are without excuse. God has appointed a day and he will judge the world. And all men will answer for their service or their rejection of the gospel. There's two choices. For Jesus or against him. And God judges based on that principle. The man appointed... Paul is here provoked, and he declares the truth of a God who will hold sinners and sin accountable. Men no longer have an excuse, and Paul still uses language the Greeks will follow and understand. God has appointed a day. He's appointed a man. This isn't, that's not the way he would speak. To the Jews. To the Jews he would talk about God has anointed a Messiah. But for the Greeks, he's speaking to them about a God that they can comprehend and understand. Because they don't know the scriptures. They don't know the revelation of the Old Testament. But they can understand a God who will judge. And they can understand a man who God appoints. And the vindication and the proof of the gospel is always found in the resurrection. That is what the gospel is. The gospel is when Christians go out and bear witness to the truth that they know because God has revealed it to them. And what the gospel is is that God raised a man from the dead. And in the resurrection, Jesus is established as Lord and ruler of the world. In the resurrection, Jesus is set up as king. And this is a complete picture of the gospel. 
Paul has, has, has delivered a clear picture of what God did in the world. He's, he's told the story of reality. God created the world. God put man on the world, earth, to fill it and to grope for him. And he's calling all men everywhere to repent from their idolatry and sin. And serve him lest they be judged by his appointed representative. That's the grand story of the world. It's a complete picture. The gospel is satisfying. It's fulfilling. But the resurrection is new to the Greeks. And as he speaks elsewhere, it is foolishness to the Greeks. The suffering Christ, the crucified Christ, is, is a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's foolishness to the Greeks. The resurrection that Paul speaks of here is new to them. That's what they wanted to hear a new thing. Paul says, I'll tell you a new thing. God has revealed something new in the way the world works, and it changes everything. The resurrection is the death knell to all of the opposition of the Greek philosophers because it flies in the face of Epicurean belief in non-existence at death. Epicureans believe, well, you live, then you die. Eat, drink, and be merry. What? You mean we're going to have to answer for how we live? That's what the resurrection says. The Stoic says, well, God is in each of us, and we're just all participants, and fate is what happens, and just you got to deal with it. And after we die, we just get to go, our spirits to go be back part of the great being, spirit. But, in opposition to the Stoic pantheism, Paul says, no, God is outside of you, and he will judge you, and you will come back from the dead and be judged by him. You will be held accountable. Repent. God commands all men everywhere to repent. That is very inclusive. All men everywhere. Nobody is left free of this. And I think that we don't believe this well enough. God proclaims a resurrection from the dead and a judgment in which all men will be held accountable. And if we really believed that, we would be provoked like Paul. We'd be driven to proclaim the gospel because men need salvation. God loved us and he gave it to us. He's been generous and great, generous and gracious and kind to us. And we need to be like him. We need to be like Paul. We need to proclaim the truth of salvation to the world. And then in verses 32 to 34, we read about how they respond. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, remember, to the Greeks' foolishness. While others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So we see a mixed bag of response. 
Some mock. Some procrastinate. What? Come back. Tell us again. They're, they're appeasing their conscience. Because Paul has just basically laid it on the line and said, Repent or die. That's, that's the gospel. Repent or die. And they say, well... You know, they're like Festus when he's hearing Paul later on. He says, well, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. No. Repent or die. Don't waste a minute. You don't know when you're going to die. And when you die, it's too late. Some mock, some procrastinate, and others respond in faith. So what do we do with this? How do we apply this to our lives? First... A reminder from last week. Let us not forget that Paul was on fire. Be on fire. Get provoked by all the idolatry you see around you. Speak, speak loud, exhort, rebuke, and get heard. Go to the synagogues and the marketplace. Find your audience. And then tell the truth. Don't back off of it. And that's the second point of application. The first one is just a reminder. The second point is this. Every argument is answered in one way. Point to Jesus. Every argument is answered by the truth. It's almost a commonplace, the story of how counterfeit money is recognized. The men and, and, and women who spend their time recognizing what, what counterfeit money is don't go around looking at counterfeit money. They really get to know real money. They really get to understand the ink and the paper and the feel of it in their hand. Because when you really know the truth, all the counterfeits are obvious. They just, they just pop out. They stand, they stand apart because, because the truth is consistent, it's faithful, it's real, and it stands the test of time. So if you want to identify what is false, if you want to recognize idolatry, study the real thing. Study the gospel. Study the Apostles' Creed. That's the basics of what we believe. In our text, the arguments against the truth are answered with the truth. Idol and temple worshipers. God is not like gold or silver or stone, nor is he worshipped in temples. But why not? Well, because he's the creator God. Well, because he is near you. Well, it's because he's outside of you. Well, it's because he cares about what you do and he ordains everything that comes to pass. The philosophers, for the Stoics, God is not inside of you. He's outside of you and he will judge you. He made the world. He's Lord of it and he will judge it. For the Epicureans, God ordains the times and the boundaries of men. He's not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. That's the truth. That's what the Bible reveals to us. So what's it mean for our world? 
It means that we need to recognize false belief and argue against it with the truth. So, evolutionists, what do we tell them? We, we tell them what the Bible says. God created the world. Matter's not eternal. What do we tell agnostics or atheists? God now commands all men everywhere to repent. That's what the Bible says. A day is coming when he will judge the world in righteousness. For everybody, we need to tell them that the resurrection is the proof and the warning and the hope and the good news of the gospel. So this is the truth. It's a threefold witness. It's a threefold gospel witness. This is the truth. Creation, judgment, and resurrection. That's the gospel. Creation, judgment, and resurrection. Now, it's difficult to proclaim these truths, but it's absolutely necessary. And they're hard to understand with our fallen hearts. We, we, we hate God, so we don't, want, we, we don't want to serve Him with our fallen hearts. And so He needs to intervene in our lives. But you cannot have God, you cannot have the truth without any one of those things. Without God being the Creator, without Him having an ultimate judgment, and without the resurrection from the dead. And Paul uses many things to communicate these truths. He uses language. He uses cultural, cultural truths and, and examples. He uses poets. And he uses logical argument. He uses rhetorical speaking. He, and yet he never compromises on these truths. Creator, judgment, resurrection. And so similarly, we must be willing to pursue the truth with the language of our contemporaries. Out of love, because we love our neighbor as ourselves, we try and communicate to them in language that they will understand. So in order to do that, we must first see clearly so that we can recognize their blind spots and help them to see them. So we can open their eyes to the truth. So the first thing we need to do is we must know the truth Intimately, It must just be in our pores. It, it, I mean, it, as soon as we bump up against any kind of heresy or false belief, it just has to be instantly recognizable to us because we know the truth so well. It must be clear to us, and we, and we must know it that well in order to communicate it well. And then second, we must be bold and not compromise the truth. A lot of people are willing to compromise the truth in order to gain a hearing. No. We do not back off of God, Creator. We do not back off of God, Judge. And we do not back off of God raising men from the dead. Because we have to speak, cle we have to speak clearly on Revelation. That's the creation. We have to speak clearly about man's responsibility, and we have to speak clearly about the proof of all of this, and that's what's witnessed in the resurrection and those who have witnessed the resurrection. 
So the first thing is know the truth. Second is be bold. Third is know your audience. We live among them. We know the propensities of our society and their weaknesses. We must study how to communicate with them. We must know where they're at. We must understand their thinking. Know what, we, what you'll come up against. Know all of the current isms in our culture. You know, evolutionism, agnosticism, atheism, statism. That's, you know, liberalism, conservatism, libertarianism. Materialism, relativism. Know all of these false beliefs. Because we're going to have to wrestle against the arguments for them. And we must know what the truth says about them and how they deny the truth. We must know false religions. Not that we have to study them ad infinitum, but we must know when we encounter them what the gospel says to them. To Muslims, to Eastern religions, to Mormons, to Jehovah's Witnesses. We must know how they deny the gospel. We must know Christian heresies in the same way. The, the health and wealth gospel. Or the, the whole sign the card, pray the prayer, and you're saved. Well, there's more to it than the gospel than that. Um, we must know how this stuff denies Christ. And remember, the best way to, to spot this is to study the truth. Know the Bible and know your Lord. Have a healthy relationship with Christ and it will bear fruit in your life. The best witness is truth, but the truth must be lived out. Christ reveals to us God by becoming a man. And we need to be like Christ in that we take His Spirit and live the way He lived in the world. We must be His body. And we must love our neighbors. And there are many ways that we can do this. We can use common experience. We can, we can talk to our co-workers, those who we have shared interests and hobbies with, our neighbors, those who live close by us. Because God works in all the big stuff and the small stuff. He ordains the times and the places. He is evident everywhere. So learn to communicate the truth from your perspective in God's work in everything. Live your life in the wonder of His revealed world and marvels. Be ready in season and out of season to give a, hope, a reason for the hope. Another way that we can we have shared experiences is in our innate desires or our cultural expectations or our our consciences. C.S. Lewis was was a wizard at, at using the common experiences of mankind to argue for the ultimate reality of God, and that resonates with people. Um, in, but in order to do this well, we have to be very clear-headed about this stuff. We must understand how that works and how God reveals Himself to us in His created order and in our lives. Another method you can use is, is current events, you know, bombings, natural disasters, a funeral. All of these things God ordains. And He puts you in the audience that He puts you in so that you can speak His truth to that situation. He places us where we're at and when we're there. 
He uses, use his ordination of these things as a prompt to do what he tells you to do, and that's to be a witness. And then finally, the last point of application is, is be done when the jeering starts. When the mocking happens, be done. Rest in God. He's in control. If you've done your duty of witnessing the truth, you've done your duty. Let the truth do its own work. God works in people's hearts, and you are not sovereign. Some people go around trying to bear the weight of the world in their evangelism, and what they'll find is that they can't do it. They'll they'll feel personally responsible if somebody rejects the gospel that they preach. But you you can't live that way. It will hinder your witness because it'll turn your faith into a burden instead of a blessing. God is the one who sends fruit, and God is the one who withholds it. Point to Him and glorify Him. Do your job and accept the fruit that He sends your way. But above all, remember that God is God. He is the one who always has the last laugh. He sits in the heavens and He mocks the foolish nations who rage in vain. Your job is just to say... Listen, you are setting yourself up for a fall because you're not recognizing the ultimate God. God will judge, and if you, if you obey Him, that's all that matters, because you answer to Him. And that is the ultimate reality, and that's what you are called to witness. Rest in God, because in the Gospel, you know that He loves you, He died for you, and He will vindicate you at the last day. In the name of the Father... The Son and the Holy Ghost is pray. chapter 1 verses parts of 22 and 23 he has reconciled you in his fleshly body if you continue in faith firmly established and steadfast Calvin once said that the way you begin the Christian life isn't as important as you end it the big issue is whether you are preserved to the end Calvin got this from Paul these verses that we read here where we are reconciled if we continue in faith to the end This isn't denying the security of our salvation for those in Christ, but it's pointing to where our confidence really lies. Neither does this mean we save ourselves. We are saved as we keep trusting God to save us, as we trust the Spirit of Jesus to present us to the Father, holy and blameless. Even our preserving is a gift from God. God doesn't get us started and leave us to ourselves. The Spirit continually renews our faith, and this is very real and demonstrated to us at this table. Each week, the Father reiterates the promise and reaffirms His determination to save us. This is God's character, and it demonstrates to us His ardent love and care for us. Each week, God offers the gift that, uh, I'm sorry, each week God offers the gifts of God to the people of God. Jesus' own words tell us, we heard this in the catechism as well, this is my body which is broken for you, and this cup is a New Testament or the covenant in my blood. These are, this is God's affirmation of his desire 
for fellowship with you and of the death and the burial and the remission the burial and resurrection for the remission of our own sins. Your job is to believe in him and to rest in him. Take and continue in faith, established and steadfast. Take and trust. Christ's body, broken for you. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.